if you are a guest, I want to welcome you and thank you for being with us. And you're probably maybe wondering why are we outside? We're outside because they're redoing the gym floor inside. And several years ago, we had the opportunity to meet like this in 2020 for, I think it was almost seven months. And um, a number of people loved it. And they wanted to do it, and we tried it last year, and I think we got rained out the only time we were going to do it last year. But it provides an opportunity for us to sort of remember, I guess, God's faithfulness in some ways and to continue to meet. Um, But if you are a guest, that's why we're here. That's why we're outside today. We do have plans if it rains and things like that, and I'll share that in just a moment. But if you are a guest, thank you for joining us this morning. Hopefully get a chance to meet you after the meeting here as well. Um, I do have several announcements to share before we do jump into God's word. Um, One has to do with, we have a men's meeting coming up on the 27th of this month. We're going to be doing a cookout at Red Top Mountain. There's going to be more details to come, but we want you guys to save the day. It's for all the men in the church, high schoolers, um, older men, all you guys. We're just going to take some time, get together, have a cookout, Um, Enjoy some fellowship with one another. But again, that's going to be on June 27th, um, 21. There's always an adjustment. I remember when we did this. This has nothing to do with my message, just so you know. When when we moved outside in 2020, it it changed the way we did church um, in a significant way. We went from an hour and a half meeting to an hour. And um, if you've been in this church for a while, you know we have a break. Sometimes it can feel like this awkward break after worship where we send kids off to children's ministry. And um, all of you who've been here for a long time, take advantage of that to get up and talk to people and see folks. And, and I love that part about our church. Um, but just in this meeting, I'm sure it feels a little strange for you as well to go back to meeting at 9 o'clock and being done at 10 o'clock and then having cars race by and sometimes there's going to be a motorcycle that's going to be really loud and um, I'm just sharing this these are random thoughts through my head as we're worshiping and setting up of just why I'm grateful to be able to meet inside but also why I'm grateful to be able to meet outside I'm just remembering um, God's faithfulness to us but with the distractions of being outside I trust that the Lord um, will meet us in those distractions the other thing you need to know is when I preach in this context like this I feel like I have to yell for some reason. Um, so if it feels different, that's probably why. It feels like I'm talking on a phone and it's like speaker and you just yell because it's on speaker. But I'll try not to do that. Um, so anyways, First John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. And this is uh, kind of a part two from last week's message as John just continues talking about God's love. So if you can just turn there and I'll read it. Verses thir- starting verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Lord, I ask that you would just bless our ears to hear. Lord, you bless the preaching of your word. You take this message, you take your words from scripture and sow them deep in our hearts. Lord, it just feels like in, in many ways as we go through this, this letter, Lord, that you're after, you're after something. Lord, you're after the way in which we think about who we are in Christ. You're looking to encourage and build us up and give us insure, assurance and confidence in the faith. And the Lord, you're... You're after the way in which we relate to one another. Lord, calling us continually throughout this letter to love one another. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit that we might actually love one another. Lord, that we would love people in the way in which you have loved us by the sending of your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there it is. Just count the motorcycles. Anyways, have you ever noticed that the things we do are typically determined by our identity? Who we think we are kind of determines what we do. So if, if you're a husband or a wife, then, then you probably do husband things or you probably do wife things because you identify as a husband or you identify as a wife because that's who you are. And the longer you're married, the longer you realize that's who you are and who God's called you to be. And you understand these roles and, and husbands are supposed to look a certain way and wives are supposed to look a certain way. And so you live out that identity by walking in those roles. If you're a parent, then you probably do the things that parents are supposed to do. If you identify as a creative person, an artist or something like that, you most likely do creative things. If you think you're a pickleball player, what do you think you do? Play pickleball. I, I don't think I'm a pickleball player, but sometimes I have to be thrown into a pickleball match once in a while, but I don't identify as a pickleball player. If you identify or you think of yourself as a reader, some people like to do that. They like to say, yeah, I'm a reader. How many in there are readers? How many in your spare time, if you had a free moment? So people who are like that typically read a lot, right? You're, you're a reader, so you read. If you think of yourself as a coach, what do you think you're going to be doing? Probably coaching. If you think of yourself as a writer, most likely you write things. You like to grab a pen or maybe you type these things out and you do that kind of stuff, but you get what I'm saying here. Who, who you think you are, who you really are, sort of determines a lot of the time, and I would say most of the time, what you end up doing. In this letter, John has been encouraging his readers to be loving. 
to love God and to love others. And in this section of scripture, he's going to encourage us again with this similar command. But before he does so, he reminds us of who we really are, because that's what's meant to encourage us and sort of motivate why and how we actually love one another in the context of these relationships that God has brought us into. Our identity as children of God, as men and women who call themselves Christians, needs to inform the way in which we relate with one another. And what John has been trying to get across throughout this letter, and he does other things as well, is just that. You're a Christian. And he's trying to give that assurance. You are a child of God, loved by God. Therefore, love one another. Therefore, in the way in which you relate with one another in contexts like this and in other contexts that just happen wherever the Lord allows for your feet to travel and whoever he allows for you to interact with, he he wants us to relate to people out of that identity that he has given to us as believers. And so he calls for us to love one another. What we're going to learn in this text is this. Our love for others is rooted and grounded in God's love for us. Therefore, we are able to actually love one another. We are able to actually love one another because our love is rooted and grounded in God's love for us. And so we're going to look at three points this morning and try to unpack that truth. In our first point, we learn that God's love in us gives us assurance of his presence in us. God's love in us gives us an assurance of his presence inside of us. Verse 13 begins with John telling us how we know that we can have assurance that we're truly saved. And so again, he's been just sort of hammering this point. He, he wants his readers to have a unshakable confidence that God has saved them, that they are indeed children of God who've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because when you have that confidence, it informs how we live. It informs what we do. It, it gives us greater faith. And we're going to see in this context, it, it sort of begins to root out and push away those, those fears that we might have. But here in verse 13, he says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And so again, he's saying, by this you know, by this you can have confidence, by this you understand that we abide in him And he abides in us because he's given us his Holy Spirit. So we know that God abides in us and we're abiding in him because his spirit is at work in us. It's at work in all true, genuine believers because he pours out his spirit upon us at conversion. Every genuine believer at the point of their conversion is sort of baptized in the Holy Spirit. The spirit takes over and the spirit does things it's the holy spirit that makes us alive in christ it's the holy spirit that gives us a heart to love god and to follow jesus it's the holy spirit that empowers us to see sin to confess sin to repent of sin and hate sin 
And on the flip side of that, to love holiness. That's the Spirit's work in us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us gifts and abilities to build one another up. And to do the things that God has called us to do for his glory. We, we just spent a moment just trying to honor these, these men who serve on the setup team and the production team and the sound team and the, the women who do those things as well. And, and they have gifts. And they have gifts that they use to serve our church. And those gifts are theirs because God has poured out his spirit upon them and he's gifted them in those ways to serve a church like ours, and to build us up. It's the Spirit that's doing that work. It's the Holy Spirit that opens up our minds and hearts to love God, to love His Word, and to make it effective and fruitful in our lives. And so Phil was reading from Psalm 19. I encourage you this week, go back and look over Psalm 19 and spend time just looking at what God's Word accomplishes. One of the things I love that it accomplishes, it, it makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. And so I continually go back through that scripture at times, depending on where I feel like I might be. And I just I remind myself that, that I need God's word. I need God's word to accomplish God's purposes. I need God's word to revive my soul, to rejoice my heart, to make wise this simple mind at times and so i dive into god's word for that purpose but it's the spirit working through god's word and in in my heart that that accomplishes those purposes it's the spirit that causes us to grow it's the holy spirit that leads us to live the lives that god has called us to live it's the spirit that causes us to go and make disciples of jesus christ and so point is, that I'm trying to make here, is, is we don't do any of these things on our own. We, we don't create these things in and of ourselves and in our own strength. We are who we are as believers because of God. Because God is at work in this world and because God is kind and because God is gracious and he's good and he's loving and he has saved us and in saving us, he has poured out his spirit upon us and his spirit is at work in us. So the only reason that we are believers today is because God has saved us. The only reason that any of us would know Jesus and would ever want to pick up a cross and follow Jesus is because of God and because of his spirit at work in us. The only reason any of us have any of these gifts, and some of us are probably thinking, I don't have a gift. And that's just not true because the Spirit produces gifts. You might not know what they are, but they're there. Sometimes it takes time to explore what they might be. I'm a big fan of trial and error. And so just a side note here, we have guys who have served in different capacities in the context of the local church, and you think you're gifted in this way, and then you find out, no, you're not really gifted in that way. And so you move over to this different place, and you find out, wow, I am gifted in this way. And so you may have a gift of teaching, or you may have a gift of helps. There may be variations of those things, and you try to fit them in the right context for the purpose of glorifying God and building up his body. But the point is, we all have gifts, and these gifts come to us from the Spirit. See, there's nothing special about any of us that we've ever created on our own. All of it is a gift from God. 
that he gives to his children. Anything special. It, it all comes from God who gives us his spirit. And this would be a reason for us to praise the Lord. This would be a reason for us to identify evidences of grace continually in the life of the church and the life of people that God allows for us to walk by faith with. It's a reason for us to create a culture of encouragement and a culture of gratitude because the reality is the spirit of God is at work in all of God's people. Sometimes we're not very good at identifying that, but I feel like what John's doing here in some ways as he's trying to give us this assurance is is to help us see, no, God is at work. You have his spirit. He abides in you and you abide in him because he's given us his spirit. And so in some ways, we got to train ourselves. We got to be thinking, okay, theologically, this is true. This is true of all of us. God's spirit is at work. And John is saying it's meant it's meant to build up our faith. It's meant to sort of give us this confidence that we are indeed God's children, that we are indeed Christians. Because he's given us his spirit. David Allen in his commentary wrote the following. He says the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the means of of assurance that we are truly united to Christ. So how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit in us? Look at verses 14 and 15. John says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so what does he do here? How do do we know we have the Spirit? He he directs us back to the gospel. He directs us back to our conversion. And he just says, those who testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's how we know. So just... For a moment, just just think about your conversion. How did you become a believer? How is it that you got saved? What was God doing in your life? I, I like to think about this often. And I like to challenge us as a church to, to think about our testimonies. Because as I've grown older, I've been saved, I think, for over 20-some years now. And my conversion testimony sort of changed in the sense of how I think about what God was doing in my life when he saved me. I don't know that I would have said immediately after I'd gotten saved that, that like that in the sense of God saved me at this point. I probably would have smuggled in some of my own works thinking that I did these things. See, I first heard the gospel when I was about 13 years old, and it kind of made sense to me. Kind of made sense to me. It was presented in this way. And so as a 13-year-old, I really liked this girl. Her name was Sarah. She's my wife now. And she kind of grew up in a Christian home. And all of her relatives were Christians. And I really liked her, and I really wanted to date her at 13. And by the way, we didn't live in the same town, so... Dating with no phone, no internet, just writing letters. It's a little awkward. But anyways, point is this. 
I would have prayed a prayer at 13. And it would have said, I gave my life to Jesus. I asked Jesus into my heart at 13. But the reality is, I only did that because it kind of made a little bit of sense to me. And because Sarah's dad would not let her date somebody who wasn't a Christian. And they were saying, well, this is how you become a Christian. And so, yeah, why not? Right. At 13. Problem is my life never changed. I prayed a prayer and would have thought, yeah, okay, this is how I had gotten saved. But the reality is my life never really changed. There, there wasn't this great desire to know God. There wasn't this love for God and a love for his ways. There wasn't really a conviction of sin. So there wasn't any repentance of sin. Instead, what happened for really the next five years was just jumping into more sin and thinking I was sort of just safe because I prayed this prayer at 13. Knowing, as I look back, this is where it sort of changes, is knowing all the way that it, it, it was just my decision to get me something that I wanted at the time. So there was no heart change. And I'd say there was no spirit at work in me. There was no me abiding in God and God abiding in me through his spirit. Because it wasn't until I was 19 years old that the Lord actually saved me. And everything changed. Filled me with his spirit. And when I say everything changed, it, it was a significant change. In my life, I remember just being overwhelmed with the love of God. And this was, these were new things to me. I remember being aware, very aware of my sin and the need to repent of it. And then as time would go on, I'd be even more aware of more sins that I wasn't aware of earlier. And the Lord began to give me this, this conviction of sin and it, it felt like something. It sort of just sort of led me in this direction to confess it when the Lord allowed me to see it and then to try to turn away from it by his strength and power. And then he gave me this deep love for his word. Just wanting to read his word as much as possible because it sort of just became alive. That wasn't there prior to him actually saving me. When I was 13, I'd maybe try to read it, but it was like just reading something that I didn't understand. But after he genuinely saved me, everything changed. Everything changed. This real strong desire. This is one of those things that sort of started back then and sort of only been growing is this desire to consider the interest of others more important than my own. That was foreign to me prior to the Lord saving me. And I, I think that's foreign to all of us prior to God saving us. Prior to God saving us, we, we really just want to do what we want to do. We think primarily about ourselves, getting what we want when we want it, living a comfortable and easy life. But when the Lord saves us, he changes us. He abides in us and we abide in him through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And his spirit begins to do a work in all of us. So think about your own conversion. Think about what God has done in your life. Think about what you think about in relation to who God is and his word and his ways. 
And just begin to ask yourself your question. This question, why, why do I think this way? Why do I desire these things? An example could be, why are you here today? What brings you to church on a Sunday? What gets you out of bed to come join this service and listen to God's word being preached? I'd say it's the spirit of God. It's God at work in his people. He made our hearts alive to him and his ways. And there's these things that he does where he just, he pushes us in his direction. And he calls for us to participate. He calls for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For we know that it's him who's at work in us. And so there's a responsibility we have. But this responsibility, I think, it follows the lead of God who's at work in his people. And so if you confess that God has sent his son into this world and you believe that Jesus is the son of God and you've staked your life on it, you've, you've surrendered your life to him and you're picking up a cross and you're just saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you. John would say, you should have assurance that you are God's children, that his spirit dwells in you because you don't think that way apart from God being at work in us. So before we move on to the second point, I want to just ask a couple questions for you to think about. One is this, this, do you love God? What, what does that love for God look like? Do you love Jesus? Do you love what he's done for you? living a perfect life on your behalf, dying a sacrificial death, exhausting the wrath of God that all of your sins deserve so that you might be free from the power of sin to live a life that glorifies God. Do, do you love that? And then do you want to surrender your life to him? When you wake up each day, is it, is it Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do. And I know that's a struggle. I say that, and then there's a selfishness that's battling that all the time. But is there a desire for that? And then do you love others? Is there an inkling in your heart to really and genuinely consider the interests of the people around you? Think about that. Think about the people God has placed in your life. Is there a genuine love for them? Is there just a, a lean, like even for the difficult people, if you know what I'm talking about? And just so you know, we are difficult people. You have difficult people in your life, and I'm aware more than ever that I am a source of a difficult person for many people. Some of them are you. We interact at different ways and different times. But I believe God has placed us together in contexts like this to grow us in our faith. Because he calls for us to love one another. And so if, if there's a desire for that, if there's a thought of, I know Aaron is a difficult person to be around, but, but I'm going to love him anyways. If that pops into your head anywhere, what John would want you to know is God's spirit is at work in you. His spirit is at work in you. If you're fighting in your mind and for ways to love difficult and hard people because you know you're called to pick up a cross and follow Jesus and to love people in the same way in which God has loved you sacrificially, 
John wants, to, wants you to be encouraged. Because you do that, not because you're a great person in and of yourself. No, you do that because God is at work in your life. His spirit dwells in you and you are abiding in God and he is abiding in you. And this is what it looks like. It looks like loving God and loving others. This leads us to our second point where we see that God's love in us gives us confidence to stand before Jesus. God's love in us gives us confidence to stand before Jesus. Verse 17 and 18 says, by this love perfected with us by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love how we relate to and treat others in this life will give us confidence to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, or it will be a source of fear. John teaches us here in these verses that as our love for God and others grow in this life, it, it should bring along with it this, this confidence for the day in which we stand before Jesus. It should bring with us this confidence that, that we really are united together in faith in Christ, that we stand in Christ and he represents us so that when we stand before him on that day of judgment, we are found in him. Daniel Atkin wrote the following. He says, loving others out of gratitude for how we've been loved in Christ has consequences not only for the present, but also for the future. One day, one day, this whole world will come to an end. Just curious, how often do you really think about that? How often do you, do you spend thinking about that day when, when Christ gets off his throne and he wraps this whole thing up and he gathers everybody and we get to stand before him on this day of judgment? It, I think it would serve us well. It would serve us well to think of this day often, to not just ask the question, what would Jesus do? But to also ask ourselves, what would Jesus say about this? So it's one thing to say, what would Jesus do in this situation? But just kind of like maybe make that question a little bit more robust and, and, and put it into John's way of thinking and just say, OK, I'm going to stand before Jesus one day for the way in which I am about to relate to this person. So what is Jesus going to say about that? Because he's going to call everything into account. On that day, listen, there, there will not be anything hidden. Nothing hidden. No thought. No thought that you've ran through your mind several times that nobody's ever seen and nobody's ever heard and you've never even acted upon it but you've thought about it that that's going to be exposed every action everything we've ever done it's just it's going to be brought out into the light and it's not just the actions it's the things we didn't do that we were called to do so sometimes it's a it's going to be the well, why didn't you do something here type of thing and then every word 
Every word's going to be brought out. Every harsh word, every loving word is just going to be brought out into the light. Just think about that. Parents, think about the way in which you speak to your children. Think about the way in which you have walked by faith and have sought to train up your children in the ways of the Lord. All of that just brought out into the light. It's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? I'm a dad. I have four kids. I don't want everything brought out into the light. I don't, I don't want to have to share it. Like, th- this, is what, this is what I said here. This is what I said there. This is what I did this day. And this is what I didn't do that day. And, and it could be fearful to think about that. To think about those things that are just sort of shameful. That you regret. That you can't believe you did. All of it just brought out into the light. Every minute of every day of our entire lives will be examined and we will be judged accordingly. Scary, right? Scary to think about just all the sins that are just, you could rack up. They're just going to be brought to light and we're going to have to give an answer to Christ for. But John's not writing this letter so that we would be fearful of that day. He's writing this letter so that we would be full of faith for that day. And it would motivate how we live today, knowing that we're going to stand before our Savior, Jesus. And so again, look at verses 17 and 18. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence. Confidence. He wants us to be confident when we stand before Christ because... As he is, so also are we in the world. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. What he's he's trying to get at there, our confidence is not primarily in what we can do. Our confidence to stand before him one day is to be found in him. See, he was perfect on our behalf. Perfect always spoke the right word at the right time with the right tone to the right people. Every word he ever spoke was perfect. Everything he ever did from the time he was born until the time he was crucified was absolutely perfect. Never any sins. Always doing the right thing at the right time with the right amount of effort to the right people. And he did that so he would be a perfect sacrifice for us. So that when he was on the cross, he could be crushed and take the full penalty for all of our sins. So that when we stand before him, we find ourselves clothed in his righteousness. With his righteousness. Now, that's not a do what you want. That's not a hey, this is God's grace and you're set free and you can just do whatever it is you want. It kind of is, but it kind of isn't. And what I mean by that is is God's grace should work in our lives in such a way as when we see that and when we know his spirit's at work in us, it it doesn't push us to sin more. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card or get-out-of-jail-free card. See, when we encounter the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and we experience his grace in that way, just knowing with all of our sins, 
all of the things we've ever done and he paid the penalty for them all and we've been set free from the power of sin and these things are forgiven and we stand in his righteousness. It's meant to compel us. Meant to compel us to live a life for the glory of God. A life of just continual repentance and faith. Trusting not in ourselves, but trusting in the grace of God. Trusting that when we stand before him, we will be found in him. So there's no fear on that day. See, we look forward to that day because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This leads us to our final point. God's love in us gives us the ability to love one another. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love God and we can love one another because God has first loved us. It's just important. This is where theology sort of informs how we live. That's how it kind of should always work. But so God first loved us. Informs how we are able to love one another. He created us in his image after his likeness. You didn't create yourself. Didn't didn't just happen by chance. We have a God who created all things, and he chose to create us in his image after his likeness. God did that. God also took the initiative to come after us. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God has the plan to come after and save us. He crushed his only son, Jesus, on the cross because he loved us. And he's filled us with his spirit because he loves us. God loved us first and our ability to love him and others, it comes from him. Verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How do we know if we're actually a Christian or not? That's what John's pushing towards. Notice in these verses, John didn't say anything about praying the sinner's prayer or even being baptized. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know those are are words we use, and obviously we baptize people because we want to obey the Lord, and he calls for us to be baptized after he saves us. But we don't look back to those things. John's not saying, okay, you know you're a Christian, you know you're saved because you prayed that prayer when you were 13. You, You said those words as somebody led you in that. You're saved because you opened up your mouth and you said that. That's not what he's saying here. If he truly saves us, What he's saying is that he changes us. He radically changes us by making us more and more like Christ as the Holy Spirit abides in us. And the change that John wants us to pay attention to in this context is the way in which we relate with others. By the way in which we treat people. By the way in which we actually genuinely love one another. He said you can't claim to worship God and follow Jesus while you hate your brother. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. 
He's just saying it, it doesn't work. If you abide, if God abides in you and you abide in him and you say you're a believer, then, then as he's at work in you, you're going to love others. That's just the effect because God is love. It's who he is. And so he's producing this in us. Therefore, when we relate to one another, he says, love your brothers. It's a sign that God is at work in you. It's a sign that you indeed are one of his kids who've been saved by faith in Christ alone. And if you don't, he says, you're a liar. You can't hate a brother or sister. You can't walk around and say, okay, I'm going to love these people here, but I'm not going to love that person because that person just did me wrong one day. Because that person over there, he, he just never asked for forgiveness and took something from me, took my chair after church and didn't bring it back. And now he's sitting in my chair. I want my chair back. You know what I'm talking about. Just difficult people who take advantage of you. Well, God calls for us to love them. Well, why in the world would we love difficult people? Why do we love enemies? Again, think about the gospel. How has God loved you? You weren't a good person when he sent his son, Jesus, to die for you. You weren't like hitting it out of the park in regards to worshiping him. You, you weren't even thinking about him. Scripture says we were his enemies. Yet God loved us and he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. To save us. And he calls for us to love others. Daniel Atkin wrote the following. He says, our ability to actually love God is wedded to the reality of our love for fellow human beings. And such a love is not sporadic or periodic. It's not occasional. It is continual. It reflects and demonstrates for all to see the love of God for sinners that was put on public display on a bloody Roman cross. True Christians, true Christians will love others because God has first loved them. If our actions are related to our identity, then John would tell us this morning, love one another because you are Christians. Love one another because you are God's children. Love one another because you are loved by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, I ask again that your word would produce its intended effect, that you would cause us to grow in our understanding of who we are because of who you are. Because you first loved us, you have radically changed us. Lord, you have made us your people. You have saved us by faith in Christ alone. And so, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us as we leave here, as we fellowship and interact with one another even throughout the week, Lord, that that our hearts would be moved to genuinely love the people that you have placed in our lives. Lord, help us to to genuinely consider the interest of others more important than our own, to genuinely lay our lives down for the good of those around us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.